the Foundations Conference coming up. We actually have some amazing speakers that are going to be there. Um, it wouldn't be a Foundations Conference without Joe Braden. So Joe Braden's going to be there. Um, Pastor Laron is also going to be sharing, so we can look forward to that. Uh, some of you know Perry and Diane Dodge. They have an amazing, very powerful marriage ministry, and um, we're going to be doing. They're going to be doing a breakout session. So Perry will be talking to the guys. Diane will be talking to the ladies. They actually just came out and published their first book recently on marriage. So I'm, I'm hoping they bring some copies. But I'm excited for them. And then. It took a lot of uh, contract negotiations for this last person, a lot of, uh, of twisting of an arm. But after a year, we're going to be privileged to hear from Pastor David Vaughn. So uh, he'll, be, he'll be sharing as well. So that'll be exciting. All right. Also, uh, we have the new Liberty Mug 2.0. Okay. That will be on display for the first time at the Foundations Conference. All right. This is like sneak peek. Okay. So don't try to copy the design now, all right? It's copyrighted. You guys all got version one? Some of you don't, all right? Those are classics now, man. You find them on eBay. They're going for like 15 cents or something, okay? <laughs> all right, turn to First Thessalonians. We're going to pick it up in verse 2. It says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to camp out in verse 3 for a couple weeks, but I do want to keep reading because the rest of it ties in and I'm going to refer to it. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Let's pray. Father. We thank you for the work going on here at Liberty. We thank you for the worship this morning, that we're privileged to sing your praises. We thank you that you are so good to us, and we ask, God, that you would do a work in us. Lord, let us hear your word today and respond in faith. We pray, God, that you would continue to have us be faithful to you, to choose the narrow path, the path that leads to life. We pray for our brothers and sisters across this nation, across this world today, as as they also celebrate you, as they hear the word preached, that your body, your people in this world, Lord, would be the church and be the true church and live it out. May we set the example in our own lives for the people that come into contact with us. And we ask you to go before us now, God, for your glory. Amen. All right, I want to talk about one, uh, the beauty of the church, just briefly, kind of as part of my introduction. And I want to start by asking, why were the letters of the New Testament written? You ever think about that? Like, why were the letters written? 
probably a number of reasons, but I'd say three key reasons. One would be for our instruction, right? Tell us how to live, what to do, how to think, how to act. Two, for encouragement. Think of the encouragement. I feel like Paul, I mean, that had to be one of his spiritual gifts. I mean, he was an encourager. In spite of everything going on with the different churches he's dealing with, he was very um, encouraging. Three, to correct error. Every single letter in the New Testament is dealing with some sort of error, correcting some type of misbelief. We'll find out later kind of where the Thessalonians were falling short. Paul dealt with all sorts of these problems, though, but here's the thing. Did it affect his view of the church? All these problems. I mean, think about some of those problems that these churches had. I mean, the Galatians, I mean, they were starting to think that you could be saved by works. I mean, that's bad. That's bad. Uh, Corinth, I mean, they had all sorts of immorality going on. I mean, the longer the letter, the more he's dealing with. You realize that, right? So Corinthians, how, how many chapters First 1 Corinthians? 16, right. How many chapters Second 2 Corinthians? 13. All right, Laura, you get, you get the mug, okay? There you go. All right. You, you want me to sign it? No, I just, that's all right. <laughs> I got one of them silver Sharpie pins just for the occasion. Yeah, okay. So 16 chapters, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 13 chapters. Like, the longer the letter, the more he's got to deal with and he's correcting, right? That's why the letter gets so long. He's dealing with all sorts of problems. There's uh, unity issues. That's the first couple chapters of 1 Corinthians, right? Then he spends, honestly... I think you could actually make the argument he spends about seven or eight chapters dealing with uh, sexual immorality, really, if you kind of follow his theme, the first seven chapters. Then he's dealing with idolatry. Then he's dealing with giving. I mean, then it deals with the Lord's Supper. I mean, there's a lot going on, right? But what's his attitude? Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians. Okay, so he, he writes 1 Corinthians, and he gets some feedback from him. 2 Corinthians, why don't you turn there so you can see it? 2 Corinthians 6. He says this in verse 11. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. I just love that. Like, our heart's wide open. Like, we've we've shared what we needed to share, but we're open. We are very open with you. Then he says in Philippians, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. So in the midst of the ugliness of their sin, he didn't lose sight of the beauty of the church. And, and we need to be like that as well. In the midst of our own sin and maybe the, the sin that we see people have, believers, don't lose sight of the beauty of the church. Yes, the universal church, but I'm talking like the local church. So Paul's writing to these churches. They got all their bumps and bruises and scars like he still loved them. And that's how we need to be towards our other, our other uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's the thing. I shared this with some people the other night. I think this is important. You have to love the church that you have. 
not the church you wish you had. Okay? Love the church you have, not the church you wish you had. Because a lot of times you're always like, oh, yeah, I just, I wish my church was like this, or I wish my church was like that. And, and there's nothing wrong with sometimes thinking that, as long as it's not a critical spirit. But the church, the local church, any church you go to, this church or any other church, will never fully be everything that God wants it to be while it's here on this earth. Because, I mean, it's just, it, there's going to be sin, right? Sin mars the picture. So wherever you go, this church, any other church, it's going to be an imperfect church. That's just a fact, all right? So we can't let that fact cloud our picture of the view that Scripture gives us of the local church. It's one of beauty. It's one of grace. So when, when, you, when you take New Testament letters, they give you a snapshot of what Christian living looks like. Instruction, encouragement, correction. Now, if I said to you guys, um, who wants God to speak to them on these issues? Like, you guys all raise your hand, right? Even if you didn't want to, because you know you're supposed to. You'd raise your hand. But what happens when we read a passage we don't like? Or a brother or sister in Christ, they call us out on something. They bring our attention to something. Like, what's our reaction? I mean, we can, we can just kind of skip past that passage. We can blow it off. You know, oh, well, who are you to approach me? Like, take that log out of your own eye, buddy, so we can get indignant. But Paul sets the example for us. He wanted the church to be encouraged and cared for. And that means mutual ministry. You know, we're ministering to one another. We're looking for that instruction, that edification, and that correction. True believers want those things. You should be able to say to the person in front of you, behind you right now, to the left, to the right, like, speak into my life, and I will hear it. Speak into my life, and I will hear it. That is an attitude of humility that seeks to grow in Christ. And that's what Paul was doing. He wanted the church to be encouraged. He set the example so others could follow. Now, we just read about the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness, the hope. And Paul mentions that a couple chapter, one chapter later about what he's doing. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2. One of the things I want you guys to see as we're going through 1 Thessalonians is to see how it's not just like chop, 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 this verse, that verse, this chapter, that chapter. There's like a tapestry woven Okay, it's not just little individual verses or units. You know, there's themes going throughout. And so Paul brings back from what he just said in First Thessalonians, he mentions it of his own life in, in uh, First Thessalonians chapter 2. He says this, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. So he just was talking about them being an example, and they imitated the Apostle Paul. And he's like, well, remember when I was there? Like, we're doing the same things that you guys are now doing, that I want to encourage you to continue to do. Those, those same words used in chapter 1 are the same words he uses here in chapter 2. So he's, he's drawn them back to the very thing he encouraged them with, but he's also challenged them with, the work of faith. And here's the beautiful thing. 
Paul sets the example because he wants them to grow in spiritual maturity. And he knew God's heart for the church. And he wanted the church to clearly see that. Look at, I want, to, I want you to see just a couple verses in the Old Testament. In Zechariah, that's the first one, chapter 2. Verse 8, for thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. I mean, that's God's view of his bride in the Old Testament. Right? Israel was the bride in the Old Testament. And, and, he's, and he calls Israel here the apple of his eye, a very affectionate term. He says something similar I want you to see in Jeremiah 31. It starts out in verse 1. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. I mean, even in the midst, you know, Jeremiah is telling them basically about the deportation. Their sin has caused God to bring judgment on them, even in the midst of this great discipline. God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Then he goes on, I've continued my faithfulness to you. I mean, think about that. Was Israel faithful? No. No. Like, they're like the antithesis of faithful. All right? And let's just be honest, sometimes we are, right? They're like the opposite. But here God says, I, you know, you've been unfaithful, you've been unfaithful, you've been unfaithful, you've been unfaithful, you've been unfaithful so many times. And he says here, I have continued my faithfulness to you. That's my favorite Hebrew word there, by the way. Hesed. All right? It's a very powerful word. That word faithfulness. Hesed talks about uh, love. It, it has the idea of covenantal faithfulness. That he entered into relationship with them. And almost like regardless of what Israel did, he wasn't going to walk away. Friends, that should be reassuring for us. Like whatever, whatever we might do, like God's not going to walk away. You can walk away. God ain't going to walk away. So he's got that hesed for you as well, that hesed love, that hesed faithfulness. So part of this starts when we talk about the church. It starts with who we are. But really when we talk about who we are, we need to talk about whose we are. And that always starts with God. So we look to him first to see who we are and who the church is. That's why these verses are important, because we let God speak the truth to us about us. All right, so those verses, Zechariah, Jeremiah, I mean, that's him speaking to his bride in the Old Testament, and by way of application, his bride in the New Testament, that's us. So one of the things that we see in this passage with 1 Thessalonians, we see that they were examples. 
look back, if you will, to that first chapter of First Thessalonians. He says in verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And what was the result? Well, verse 7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So they were examples to one another. They're examples to their city. They're example, examples to other believers elsewhere. Here's the thing. A couple applications. Your impact is much more far-reaching than you think at times. So God can do so, 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 so much with a chosen vessel that is willing to heed whatever God calls him to do, whatever God calls her to do. If you are a willing vessel, your impact can have ripples throughout eternity. I mean, that's the truth. So they, did, did the Thessalonians even realize like that they were making an impact? Well, sure, because I'm sure they were sharing the gospel. People were getting saved, you know, in their, their little city there. But he's saying not, not just in Thessalonica, but in Macedonia and Achaia. Those, those aren't just little cities, friends, if you don't know your biblical geography. Macedonia is large regions that encompassed many cities. Achaia, not just some little tiny little spot on the map. It's a large region that encompassed many cities. And he's saying, that, that's your impact. That's your impact. So, and, and keep this in mind for a second, folks. I mean, you know, I don't know how many people we got in our church on any given Sunday, maybe 50, 60, 70, something like that. Um, our church, because Paul is writing back to the Thessalonians a few weeks to a few months after he first was there and established the church. Okay? So it's not like, couple years later, he's writing this letter. No, it's, it's at most a few months. How many people were in that church at the time he's writing? You know, maybe 15, 20, 25. That small little church, worldwide impact. So, so don't discount the size of our church for making a difference for the kingdom. All right, God's not, I mean, think about, God, God's never concerned about, how, about numbers, really. And, and usually, when God wants to do work, he usually whittles those numbers down so that people can't be like, oh, look, look this awesome thing that we did, you know, with Gideon, right? I mean, how many, how many does it get down to? You guys remember? Like 300, right? All the way down from, from the army, and then he whittles it down. Like, if I was getting after, like, the first little whittling down, I'd be like, yeah, we can still do it, Lord. <laughs> it whittles it down a little more. Uh, I think we can still do it. And it get down to, like, a couple hundred. I'd be like, Lord, like, we're trying to fight, like, you know, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people with, like, 300 people. But, but God, right? With God in the picture, the victory is his. So you don't need some giant, large, mega church. Praise the Lord for those that are faithful out there doing the work of the Lord. You can have a, a smaller church just like ours make an impact in the community and outside the community. So I encourage us to remember that. So when we talk about um, this verse we're looking at today, the work of faith, the labor of love, steadfastness of hope, I like to call that the trio of virtue. Now, a couple weeks ago, I talked about the trio of goodness. You guys remember the trio of goodness? 
What, what, what's part of the trio of goodness? Just because you remember it doesn't mean you know it. That's one of them. You know, we're going to have to, you know, Laura's doing great today. Mercy. What else? Good job, Marla. There's one more. Patience. That's right. That's the trio of goodness. Grace, mercy, and patience. We talk about the trio of virtue. It's faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. And actually, whenever you want to talk about ideal Christian character, or listen to me here, whenever you want to talk about ideal Christian character, the term that the New Testament uses is these three words. Faith, hope, and love. Let's just look at a couple examples. First one, you probably all know, but we'll turn there anyway. 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, known as the love chapter. He goes through all those verses. Love everywhere. Love, 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 right? Get down to 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. There's your trio. There's your trio. Faith, hope, and love abide. Look at Galatians 5. We could actually spend a lot of time looking at this trio mentioned throughout the letters in the New Testament. But we're not. We're just going to look at a few. But listen to this. Galatians 5, you all there? All right, verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Did you see the trio in there? Like if you're just reading real quick, or you're not paying attention, and just kind of brushing through it, you miss it. But the trio's throughout the scriptures. Faith, hope, love. Colossians. Chapter 1. Verse 3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. There's that trio again. Faith, hope, and love. One more passage. 1 Peter 1. Verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, it might sound sound trite to say it, but if you wanted to say, what does what living the Christian life look like? I mean, you could say faith, hope, and love. Now, those, each of those words is so, you know, packed, and you'd want to make sure you understand them clearly and fully, which is kind of what we're doing a little bit. But it'd be a good answer. Faith, hope, and love. And each one of us should strive to have this 
fully in our own lives. Now, Paul, go back to 1 Thessalonians. Just by the way, anytime, since we're going through 1 Thessalonians, um, one, I'm probably just going to mess that word up because I try to say it so quickly each time. <clears throat> try saying it like three times fast, okay? I can barely say it one time fast. Uh, but just keep your finger there anytime we flip to another scripture because we're probably at some point going back to 1 Thessalonians. All right, so go to chapter 5. This is, again, it's that tapestry of weaving the same themes throughout his letter. And I want you to see this. He says in verse 8, chapter 5, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So if you wanted to see how you're doing in the, in the Christian life, you could just take those three, faith, hope, and love. How are you doing? How are you doing with faith? How are you doing with hope? How are you doing with love? Like if someone could copy and paste your faith onto themselves, would they want it? Would they want a faith like yours? You know, one of the areas we can fall short of is in the home. And how you act in the home, listen to me here, how you act in the home reveals much about your heart. Okay? How you act in the home reveals much about your heart. For when you're at home, what happens? You act like you're at home. Right? Nobody else around except your family. That's when little thing called the true self comes out and we try to justify it sometimes you know when i'm at home it's just so hard not, not when i'm at work or when i'm around my parents it's just so hard or when i'm around my kids it's just so hard really if we're honest what you're saying is is, is when my faith is tested it's just so hard and i remember years ago I had someone over at the house helping me with something. And they were there for a couple hours. After they left, my wife said, uh, you were acting different when that person was here. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and, uh, and she like, walked off a couple examples. And it like stung, but it was true. And it didn't feel good. But I knew what she was talking about. I'd kind of upped my game and been much more gracious to my children in my house than I normally would be. And she called me on it. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter what I think or your friends think about how you treat your spouse or how you treat your kids. Yeah, that doesn't matter because you can fool us all. And I've been fooled. You can fool us all. You can put on a good routine for a few hours at church, a few hours at Life Cube, a few hours at Reformation Wednesday, a few hours at IGY. So... It doesn't really matter what we perceive. What matters is how you actually treat them when no one else is around, when no one else is looking. That's the hard part. But friends, that's what, that's what God sees. He's always watching. So That's what matters is when no one else is looking, how are we doing? 
And an active faith, when we talk about this with faith, an active faith is a faith that's always active. Okay? We don't just turn it on on Sunday mornings. We don't just turn it on at the Bible study. And, and some of you might do things Saturday night that make it look like you don't even care about your faith or even have a faith. That's the bad place to be. But this is not just a faith that we're talking about. Here, Paul says it's a work of faith. Now think about that for a second. Work and faith. A lot of ink has been spilt talking about faith on the one hand and works on the other. And a lot of people think they either clash or a lot of people commingle them way too well so that they just equate the two. Faith is works and works is faith. But they're not against each other, but they're not the same thing. What I'd say is they go hand in hand. So I appreciate the emphasis that some people put on clearly differentiating faith over here and and works over here. And that's important. I mean, that was the key to the Reformation, was getting the gospel clearly articulated again. It had been lost, and, and faith and works were basically like the same thing. So I appreciate, I've talked to people emphasize faith, faith without works, I'm, I'm there. I get it. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to justification, when it comes to God regenerating you, yeah, it is faith and faith alone. Sola fide. That was one of the solas of the Reformation. But here's the thing. We have to be careful because if we're, if we're not careful in how, how we articulate what faith looks like, what it looks like, what does faith look like? We want to define what faith is, trusting in Christ for your salvation, for the forgiveness of sins. But then, then what does faith look like? And I think that's where sometimes we can, we can run into trouble. Because if we just say, well, it's just faith, 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 and we just, we're so concerned about works, whether because we grew up in a Catholic church or, or we had a works mentality ourselves. I mean, faith and works, they kind of do go hand in hand in the scriptures. You can't separate them to the point of excluding one from the other. And I, I think that, um, you know, if you act like a pagan, you talk like a pagan, you think like a pagan, you probably are a pagan. Um, a true faith changes a person. It changes a person. Now that, that changing of the person, that's not what saves them. That's the evidence that they have been saved. And think about it. Uh, Paul, the book to the Galatians is all about setting right this gospel that they've messed up and are thinking it's all about works it's all about works they've turned the gospel upside down they've perverted it i mean he starts uh throwing around uh greek curses at them regarding them distorting the gospel that's how paul serious was was that's how serious he was about it i mean you read that and he's talking about man even if angels start messing up the gospel they're cursed they are cursed. 
So look at Galatians 3, because I want to make, drive this point home to you. Let's look at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Then look at verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. So he is correcting doctrinal error. That's one of the things he's writing to them about. Okay? Um, they were so messed up that he doesn't even really give them a commendation at the beginning of the letter like he does most people. All right? They were way off. But he writes the letter because he loves them. He cares about them, and he's concerned for them and for the purity of the gospel. So he's setting the record straight. But what does he do in Galatians 5? He talks about the fruit of what? Fruit of the Spirit. You all heard of that before? Okay. You got it in your life? All right. The fruit of... Of the Spirit. That's what he's talking about. And then he talks about the deeds of the flesh. But why is that significant? Because he is saying, if you have the Spirit, there will be fruit. It's that simple. If you don't have the Spirit, you have death, the deeds of the flesh. If you want to take a look at your own life, you want to do a little introspection. Not an inspection, but an introspection. Look inward and check out what's going on. You got, more, you got more fruit or more death? If you got more death, I'd be greatly concerned about the state of my soul. Greatly concerned. That is not a good sign. Because the spirit produces fruit. The flesh produces death. And, man, i got to be honest. You read Galatians, it's like you got one or the other. You ain't got both. You got one, you got the spirit... You got the flesh. I mean, read it for yourselves. Come to your own decision. Have your quiet time today. Read through Galatians. Spirit, one hand, flesh, the other. So he sets the record straight and says a real faith produces fruit. The fruit of the spirit. A dead faith produces death. The deeds of the flesh. Now here he's saying the work of faith in Thessalonians. What is he saying? It means the work that was the result of faith. The work that was the result of faith. It was of faith. It was a work of faith. In other words, it was a work which was produced by faith. You see, faith produces works. A real faith is a living faith. A real faith is an act of faith. A real faith is seen in its actions and produces real works. And some of you have a faith. You need to renew its gym membership because it needs a regular workout, okay? It's gotten lazy and slobbish and fat. If we were some prosperity gospel church, we'd have like a little $200 membership spiritual car you could, you could buy from us, all right? Wouldn't do you any good. But it'd be nice if we could buy our spirituality. Right? Just pay so much, 
little, little indulgences or something like that? I mean, you ever think about that? It's kind of funny that the word is, you know, indulgence, right? Because you're indulging. But you, you don't want to be like Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8. What he tried to do, you guys know what he tried to do? He wanted to buy the Holy Spirit. Like he saw, he saw the awesome works that the apostles were doing. And he's like, yo, Peter. He's like, how much that cost? Because I want to do that. Like that's a cool little trick. God's, God's filling people with the Spirit. I'd like, you know, just tell me the money, I'm going to get it. Because I'm going to make a whole lot more money, whatever I have to give you. What happened, you know, Peter rebukes him. Now, can you get the Spirit? Absolutely. Is it for sale? No. But it will cost you everything you got. So work out your faith. You know, you need to picture like, um, picture like, you know, lifting weights to get stronger. All right? Uh, looking out here, I, I, I don't see many bodybuilders. That's all right. <laughs> but if that was a spiritual picture, like what would those weights include? They'd be like prayer, Bible reading. What would be some others? Are we like having a little communication problem today? Like, uh, you know, a lot of people can recognize if it's a rhetorical question or not. But that wasn't rhetorical. All right? Sharing the gospel. Going to church. Serving your neighbor, serving others, serving your family. Is that all you got? Giving. Yep, that's right. So, all those things prayer, Bible reading, sharing your faith, serving others those are keys to Christian growing. Giving, those are keys to Christian growing. You know, even if you think about giving for a second, but a lot of times people don't think about that as like a spiritual discipline. What did Jesus say? It's better to give than to receive. How many of us practice that? Though? We're all like, oh, that's true. That's true. I mean, Jesus said it, right? It's got to be true. But how many of us practice that? So we want to practice those disciplines. I mean, even including giving. You're like, oh, I don't have that much, Pastor. Oh, neither did the widow, right? So some of the greatest acts of giving I, I've seen are by some of the poorest people I know. I'm not even kidding. I'm amazed at the generosity of common, everyday folks making four figures, five figures, not six. It's a beautiful thing when God gets a hold of somebody's wallet. You know, I used to think, I still think this sometimes, like you hear about billionaires, right? That's just a, an unfathomable amount to me. Now, sadly, we talk about trillions. It kind of messes up the billions, but I mean, this is a billion. It's, you know, they got like little, little videos you can watch to show how much a billion dollars is. You know, they'll put it on pallets and stuff like I mean, they just like fill this room with money. I'd be okay with that. <laughs> But like these billionaires, I like, Lord, you know, if you, if you just saved like one of these billionaires, like think of the impact they could have. Like a billion dollars. Think of the impact they could have. 
I still think that sometimes, but you know what I, I think now? And what I say to God now, you know, Lord, if, you, if every true believer was a generous giver, like think of the impact. Think of the impact. You know, I almost titled the sermon, What Does Faith in Action Look Like? But I felt like that'd be a redundant saying. Because, because faith, just faith in action, I just need to leave out the action part. Just what does faith look like? Because faith automatically, if we understand faith right, has action to it. And here's the thing, friends. Faith does not take a vacation. It doesn't take a vacation. It's integral to you. It is woven into the very fiber of who you are. All right, it's not like some holiday sweater that you get out once a year. And we wish you didn't even get it out once a year, okay? But you still do, all right? And we compliment you on it. It's not like some winter coat that you just wear when you're outside and it's cold, all right? It's like your, it's like your skin. It's a part of you. It's a part of you. You can't get rid of it. It's with you wherever you go. You don't leave home without it. I was talking with an older gentleman recently. It was actually the gentleman I was telling you about last week with the oxygen tank and everything. He, I mean, he can't go anywhere without that oxygen tank. And I was, in, I was inviting him to the church. I'm like, oh, man, just, just bring that oxygen tank with you. You know, just wheel it on in. But he can't go anywhere, literally, without that oxygen. They were concerned when the power was going out in the area that, uh, I don't understand all the logistics of it, but that his machine would stop, right? Because then he'd stop, and that'd be bad. So we need to look at our faith, just like that oxygen shank, like we can't leave home without it. It's integral to our survival. This is the work of faith. It's a faith that works. If we have a real faith, we'll have real works. I was sharing a few years back with a lady who goes to a church that believes that the only way you can be saved is to be baptized. You have to be baptized. Without baptism, no salvation. That, that's where you really start way commingling the faith and the works. All right? Is, is baptism important? Man, absolutely. Is that one of the first steps a believer should take? Definitely. Is that linked to your salvation so that if you're not baptized, you're not saved? No. I was talking to this lady, though, and I was trying to help her understand the difference between faith and... I mean, really, this, this conversation we're having right now. But I was trying to help her understand, like, let's define what's a work. Let's define our terms. Let's define what faith is. Let's use the scriptures to show us that. And I was, you know, I wasn't trying to, to be uh, sneaky or nothing, but, I mean, I was just, you know, what's your definition of faith? What's your definition of work? And she kind of, like, ruined, ruined her own little party. Because you start defining work, and then, oh, well, then, I mean, that's baptism. That's a work. That's something you do. It's something you do. It's something you do. It's something you do after you get saved, right? So it's the work of faith. Next week, we'll look at the, uh, the other two. But I think this, this work of faith, work produced by faith. And each one of us should be, we should be, you know, little spiritual trees producing fruit. 
producing fruit. And, and God, you know, don't be looking at your brother and sister. Be like, Man, they, got, they got such a big tree and they got so much fruit. Like, God wants you just to be concerned not about that stuff. You just, one, ask yourself, do, do I got fruit? Is there fruit in my life? All right? But God will give the growth. If you're faithful, don't worry about <clears throat> how big your tree is or how much fruit you got or whatever. Like, if you are faithful, back to that trio of virtue, faith, hope, love, if you are faithful to inculcate Christian virtues, if you're faithful to seek him, to do those things we were just talking about, like God's going to take care of that. So don't be jealous about this person or that person. All of us will always have someone to be jealous about. That's just the truth. All right, you think of the greatest, most awesome person you can, best believer, he probably struggles or she probably struggles with being jealous of someone above them, if you want to put it that way. Don't, don't start doing that. That's not the way, because then that messes up mutual ministry. It messes up all sorts of things. You produce what God wants you to produce. And if that's five apples and three oranges and a pear, that's what you produce. And you know what, though? If you're faithful and that's being produced, that five apples will turn into ten. You'll end up with a couple more pears. All right, so... Trust the Lord. Let him deal with that fruit. You inculcate those virtues. Let his spirit be working in you and through you. Don't be looking at others. Keep your eye on the throne. Let's pray. God, we want to be people that call on your name. We want to be people that call you Father. Lord, I pray for anyone here who might not know you. That you be gracious to save them. Be gracious to convict them. Be gracious to weigh their heart heavy with their sin. So that they might be freed of it through the sacrifice of your son. I ask you to do that now, Lord. And help us believers, Lord, set our hearts on heaven to set our hearts on things above, to know that every good gift comes from you. Father, have your way with us. I pray for people here who maybe haven't been working out their faith like it needs to be. I pray they'd spend some time now talking to you and getting that straightened out. Lord, we thank you that your mercies are new every morning, that you are quick to forgive, that we're the apple of your eye. May we see ourselves rightly, Lord. May we see ourselves as you see us. 
We thank you for the love that you pour out upon us over and over and over and over and over again. You are truly gracious, Father, and we thank you for that. Amen.